0: you know, there is so much knowledge around. You can find it within the company, across the internet around, what do you need to get promoted or grow in your product organization? And so much of it actually I do not relate to because it's I'm, I've never seen it work in, in organizations, right? It, it's not just a product sense uh, or product thinking that gets you growth in a company or let's say even to an extent, delivering a good product also sometimes is just not enough to get you promoted. I mean, there are a lot of product managers who also sit and wonder that I actually rolled out this amazing feature. And you know what happened, right? I mean, I'm not getting the due visibility in the organization, right? So when I combine all of that, it comes down to three variables.
1: Hello, and welcome to Somehow I Manage Product Teams. I'm your host, Naveen Pichandi, and I'm on a quest to have conversations with product leaders to uncover how each of them skillfully wield the art of managing people and products. And I'm joined today by Bandan Jyot Singh, is a financial services and payments product leader and has directly led financial services products and teams for tech companies and regulated financial institutions. Bandhan currently leads the Buy Now Pay Later business unit for Reverdi, Europe's second largest BNPL player, leading product development, product management, and the UX teams. Prior to Reverdi, Bandhan led product at Booking.com, Gojek, and Aditya Birla Capital. Bandhan also manages a Substack newsletter, Productify, a collection of high quality product case studies and growth articles. In this episode, we covered three main topics, starting with one, the product manager growth equation that Bandhan formulated based on his experience and coaching teams under him. And two, we covered how Bandhan defines product strategy and a case study from his experience at Gojek. I highly recommend this section. And lastly, Bandhan's viewpoint from the global BNPL space, and area that he spent the better part of the last decade building products for. Let's get into it.
2: For management, press 5.
1: If you're really interested, it is called Somehow I manage. Thank you so
0: much for joining us today, Vandan. Same here, Naveen. I'm glad to be here on your podcast.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. Can you maybe start us off with your journey to being a product leader and some lessons learned along the way? Sure.
0: Uh, I think like a lot of us, we got into product without knowing what we're getting into. Uh, and that's what exactly happened with me. So, the, I mean, I actually picked up product roles uh, after four years of doing sales, which was actually pretty interesting. And if you know the market side a bit more and how tough it is to better appreciate what you're building. and And that was... I think it's a good mix of experience. And when I got into product, it was a mix of both hardware and software. And that's typically more complex in terms of, uh, you know, how do you build embedded software inside a heart? How does the whole system work? But the good thing was, there was a lot of system thinking that already, you know, I was starting to build early in the career rather than, you know, later when, when I've started working with all these kind of different platform teams. So that helped. And eventually one of the, the patterns that have been true for all of my product career is that I've been in financial services fintech space throughout my product career, right? But that's, that also sort of helped me grow a niche domain because I understand the intricacies, the complexities of building something in a regulated financial services world. And, And that's where the product leadership journey probably started because once you understand that and when you go to different markets, so I worked in India for five years in Indonesia, Thailand, Singapore, in Amsterdam now, right? So very different markets from each other when it comes to financial services and regulations. And uh, in, in general, from a leadership journey perspective, I've I've worked with product managers, senior product managers, UX leaders, design leaders and and researchers as, as part of my team. And would be happy to share a lot of insights that I got.
2: That's impressive. I, I always love starting off with this question just because I think I've had roughly four to five episodes so far every one of those journeys are so different from the other. And I think you're the first one who's had sort of a sales background going into product management. And uh, it's also impressive that you started off with both hardware and software because I've heard their side of building products is uh, so incredibly hard. And there's sort of deep respect for people who kind of build products in the hardware space in, in some sense too. That's, that's great to hear. Uh, one quick question that I had is, I know you mentioned you sort of have, you've been in the fintech space for, for quite a bit. And how important is it to have sort of a diversified portfolio versus kind of being an expert in one space uh, right. i asked that because what is your viewpoint in in kind of how has it helped you in kind of sticking to a fintech space And uh, do you think that's a better route than trying to see different fields, you know, try to do consumer, try to do enterprise? And I'm curious kind of how you uh, layer on the pros and cons across either. I think
0: it helps to keep a diversified portfolio, as simple as that. Because at the end of the day, you're probably solving problems for end consumers in some shape or form, no matter how you approach it. And if I can just take examples of uh, Gojek, where I was working in Southeast Asia, it's a super app that does pretty much anything under the umbrella, which is uh, cab rides, food delivery, logistics, and movie tickets, and whatnot. Right? I mean, it it does everything in a single app. So when you're building financial services for a super app, you have to think about how does a consumer ordering food think about payments? Do they want to pay before they get the food, or do they want to pay after they get it? How does someone who's taking a cab ride thinks about payments? It all becomes more complex when you add this component of you know direct payments versus buy not be later. I mean. How do you do by an on a cab ride? It's a very interesting problem statement uh, and so on and so forth. And coming back to the question, I had to really figure out with the product managers who was who were doing the food delivery stuff, product managers who were working on the cab and the transportation and logistics to actually find out the psyche of the consumer. And I, I'm a very strong believer on general product sense and product thinking and not letting the domain overtake how you think and a lot of times what happens is that when you become an expert in domain you sort of start having an assumption in your mind that I know about this space and then you will be the first one in meetings coming up with solutions and whatnot and that's actually a very dangerous path And I've tried to stay away from that so even till date I question some of my assumptions and when I've changed markets my assumptions have gone wrong and that has just only taught me about always keep questioning my assumptions.
2: There's the naivety of, of you coming in something fresh makes you avoid some of the roadblocks and makes you think there isn't no. a roadblock until you hit it and then you try to cross it from there. Pulling on the thread a little more, just out of curiosity, what pulled you into like the fintech space? What made you specialize in the fintech space? Is there a reason why you stayed in the space? And how is it different from the, uh, the other parts of the product or different verticals that you've seen? It obviously stemmed from
0: two triggers. One is I I did study finance during my Indian school of business. So that was the main trigger. So I always wanted to get into finance after, you know, spending a large part of my life doing technical sales for hardware company, national instruments, and, and later for another hardware startup. So I did want to get into finance because I saw that as the next shift. And, you know, a lot of us go into business schools to find the next switch that you think you want to do in the career. And for me, very surprisingly, it was sales to finance, which I think was also quite unique. And I was always a technical guy. When, when it came to hardware software, even though I was in finance, I was working on some investment pitches and stuff. The part of the organization that attracted me the most was the one building digital products. And I, and I actually moved within the organization to, to this part. And what actually continued to sort of help me build in this part of the you know, domain-specific product management was the fact that there is a certain kickstart that you need when you enter financial services, right? Because somebody who who has never done financial services would still need to learn regulations and data privacy and legal aspects and compliance aspects before actually going out and building a product. And when you think of a a product value chain, you know, acquisition, retention, monetization, etc. In a non-financial services product, you can just do an A-B test and figure out what moves the metric in a financial services world, you can't just do that because if you offer another variant of a financial product to your customer in any way or form, you most probably are touching upon some of the more sensitive topics around transparency of information, the fee structures and stuff like that. And hence, I always believe, I mean, this FinTech has been one aspect, some sort of uh, headway helps in terms of domain knowledge. And that's why all my product growth sort of happened within this part because it was just easier for me to come in and, and start contributing faster.
2: Speaking about your per- personal growth, I, I really loved one of your Substack posts, which is around you know, the top 1% to 5% PM growth equation and uh, how you sort of derived that from your personal experience too. I'd love to talk a little more about that. Can you break that down for us? Yeah.
0: I mean, that's one of the things, uh, Naveen, which has come from a direct experience working with product managers, product managers, different organizations different stages and often you know there is so much knowledge around you can find it within the company across the internet around what do you need to get promoted or grow in your product organization and so much of it actually I do not relate to because it's I've never seen it work in in organizations right it's not just a product sense uh, or product thinking that gets you growth in a company or let's say even to an extent delivering a good product also sometimes is just not enough to get you promoted. I mean, there are a lot of product managers who also sit and wonder that I actually rolled out this amazing feature and you know what happened, right? I mean, I'm not getting the due visibility in the organization, right? So when I combine all of that, it comes down to three variables. One is the scope of your work. So it is not so much important what you're working upon. It is also important how... Organization views your work. So always try to optimize for moving to the part of the organization. The most important work is happening. That's what I call the right scope. And then a question comes. Obviously, it's not always possible to move to the most important part of the organization. And you can always find out where the the, the most interesting work is happening. It's not so difficult to find it out. That's when I bring the second variable, which is complexity of what you're solving. At the problem statement. So even if your scope may not be the most impactful thing in the organization, but you can always find out a great problem statement to solve. And a great problem statement may be a consumer problem statement, or it may just be a complex problem statement because of, you know, the amount of stakeholder management you need to do, the amount of variables you have at work to solve for. I mean, the complexity can come from different angles. And a sort of combination of both actually determines your visibility in the organization and the work that you deliver. The right scope and the complexity of the scope, right? So both of these. And the last thing, which I think, you know, in that equation, which I say scope into complexity, raised to power influence. And I think the third one is most important. All of us at the end of the day should be great storytellers of our work. And if you're doing good work, you need to find out ways to show it in the organization. That's what I say, the raise to power influence, because that can have exponential impact on what you do. Uh, so same two product managers doing the exact same kind of impact, but one having a better influence and storytelling versus other obviously have a more visibility. And influence does not mean great presentations and only documents. It also means uh, tracking the right metrics and making, giving an update on the metrics that you're moving every now and often. So influence can come from various directions. And these are the three things if I had to make, a case for a product manager to grow in a company, I would always, you know, in my experience, always have talked about scope, complexity, and the influence of a product manager in
2: general. I love that equation uh, just because I think you've constructed that equation in a way where you're clearly giving parameters where people can control their own destiny in some ways. I get that scope. You're dependent on the scope that you're offered in some senses, and you can ask for a different level of scope if you'd like, but not always you get it. However, it's in your control for how you solve a problem that you're given and the level of alignment and execution power powers that you're sure in getting that exponential I guess parameter also tuned up. So I really like that. I'm curious. I know, I'm sure someone would have no. probably commented and said, what is strategy part of this equation? How do you, I guess, evaluate how well they're strategic in this equation? How, how do you put that? Like, how do you look at that? For a product manager
0: strategy should not be just an exercise you do once a year uh, and something you have figured out and now the rest of the year is on executing that strategy. And that's where I believe a lot of product managers get it wrong. In fact, you're almost living your strategy every week and every day and every month. I, I call it zooming out to zoom in. That's, that's how I see it. that you are always zoomed in to your work every day. But every now and then you keep zooming out to say, is this how I wanted to execute my strategy? And then if you think about it enough, you will start finding deviations, you will start finding distractions, and you'll also start finding doing well. But if you revisit your strategy every quarter, then probably you're not doing strategy, right? You're probably doing this planning, more of a planning rather than strategy. So that's how I think about how product managers should do strategy. It's, it's always have this almost like a, fish-eye view into how you look at things. You're looking at the sprint, but you're also thinking about your strategy at the same time, right? So it's a bit of more on strategic thinking, also not just creating a document or product strategy.
2: If I were to sort of pull that thread a little more, uh, and I want to kind of break this down a bit more, I think you alluded to it, which is if you're looking at it from a quarterly perspective, you're doing more planning, but strategic direction is probably more long-term, you probably do it on an annual basis or, or maybe even longer in some cases. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that how do you go about product strategy definition or how have you gone about it in your past uh, experiences? And also, I also know that you write a lot about how other organizations build products and make decisions. And I'm really curious about those case studies you've worked on. Um, how have they influenced in in kind of how you perform these activities personally? And I'd love to hear if, if there are any examples that you can uh, share with us as well. The way I look at product strategy is a combination of these it's it's not
0: a linear thing for me. It's more of like a cyclical thing that you keep revisiting every now and then. So it's not just a document, it's a living document. And it's a living organism that sort of grows or or shrinks depending on how you do and what you do every quarter, right? And your ambition is to keep, it, keep that organism growing rather than, you know, shrinking it by doing things which is not aligned with strategy. That I look at strategy is it's a combination of bets that you want to play out over a period of maximum three years. That's how I see it. And when we say bets, these are the big problem statements that you want to solve over the next three years tied to some sort of success criteria so that you know when to pivot your strategy or when to revisit it. And that's where you're committed to your strategy over a certain period of time, but not over a sort of an infinite period of time. I can say today that I'm committed to my bet over the next one year. But if this bet doesn't play out, I'm ready to change my strategic plan to something else. So you're committed to strategy over a period of time. And that's where, you know, when you look at it from a cycling perspective, your sprints can change in the middle of a week. Your roadmap can change every quarter. And your strategy should be revisited probably every year. And everything has to change. It's just that strategy changes after a longer period of time versus everything else. So just keep revisiting and figure out. Then if I have to define how should a product strategy look like, it's a combination of bets that you want to play out with some success criteria to figure out when do you actually revisit or not. And the second aspect of strategy also is to not make it too fuzzy by adding some buzzwords and stuff, visionary things. It's it's actually some concrete stuff that you do in order to find out that this strategy makes sense or not. So the actions you will perform, the things that you will test, uh, and basically the set of artifacts that you will basically push out into the market to find out the strategy is working. So whenever I work with my product managers on a strategy document, sometimes they have amazing strategic bets, which look nice. And I always tell them, can you tell me at least five actions that you will do this year to add a little bit more color to, to the strategy? So it's not just this is fuzzy, nice looking document that makes sense to everyone. And we're not trying to make anyone happy with a nice strategy, right? So there's a component of saying no to things. So what will you stop doing? What will you start doing? What will you do less of and more of is all part of this whole strategic bets. And I always want to keep revisiting with the product managers that, hey, is it still making sense or do we need to change something? And coming to the second question that you asked, I think it also helps me to find out what's happening around. How do others look at product strategy? And I'm, I've, actively talk to product leaders, find out what other product organizations are doing. And some of my writing is actually a reflection of my learnings. So I actually do not write to write, but write because I've learned something new and I want to tell everyone about it. So that, that's my motivation to write. A lot of these are my daily struggles. So when I when I post a case study, it's also about things that I was reading about that people should know. This equation was there because a lot of people wanted to figure out how to grow in an organization. And so on and so forth, right? So a lot of my writing is a reflection of my learnings in, in general. And if I can share one example of the best product strategy framework, you can say or approach, it's it's the one with Gibson from Netflix. Is the one that I feel is probably the right to start thinking about product strategy. Right? It's the mapping of strategy through certain actions that you need to perform and certain success criteria. If you do not have all three in a single view then either the strategy will be too fuzzy or the plan will have no context or the metrics will not have the right actions in place so all three in a single view and that's what it's an amazing set of articles from gibson middle on 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 netflix and how he did strategy and that's the one i i would probably encourage everyone to read when somebody asks me about product strategy
2: i've actually read that too. I'm, I'm a huge fan of gibson uh, i've watched his i uh, think strategic canvas as well as I think his personal career framework for how you look at your career growth. Can you maybe walk us through an example of a product or a capability that you worked on at Gojek or Booking.com or or at Liberty? I'm curious kind of how you went about it, having a real-world example kind of helps us walk through that, that framework that you had in mind. Too.
0: I can talk about the example from Gojek. Uh, it's, a, it's a mega scale company, right? For, for, for listeners, there's about 32 million monthly active users and equated to somewhere between Uber and Lyft in terms of the scale of the amount of mobility and movements that it handles. So how do you build a product for such a huge customer base without interrupting the flow and and the smooth flow of the app that exists otherwise without, let's say, the payments component, right? So whether you, how you book a cab or how you order food and how you book a movie ticket and so on and so forth. Now, the the challenge that we had, and and I think uh, when you think about product strategy or any sort of tactics, you should always start from what is it that I'm trying to solve or what is one thing that I I know of which uh, can solve a problem which hasn't been tested or in the market. It, it has to be something... Uh, which you believe will turn, uh, you know, the customer behavior around and so on and so forth. In Gojek, uh, in Southeast Asia, the digitization of financial services has been going on for the last 10 to 15 years. And the wallet has been one of the ways, I mean, a lot of Southeast Asian uh, companies have been influenced also by what China has done with, uh, you know, Alibaba, Alipay, where one wallet, I mean, Alipay is almost like a bank now, right? It, it, it There's one wallet that people use for their daily groceries they also use it to get a loan they also do it do to get invest to invest into stocks etc so gojek had a, a wallet called gopay and customers were using it to do the daily stuff right caps food delivery all of that but the biggest challenge in any wallet and that's true for across the globe is that you have to add money to that wallet whether it's through your bank account or it, it's like a prepaid card right you have to add money to it before you spend on it. And we saw that we reached a stagnation point. Only a certain percentage of customers used to top up their wallet. Others would be like, I just want a cab right now. I don't want to go through this whole flow of topping up my wallet from a bank account, adding money to it, and then sort of, uh, going in and taking my cab. And if you think about the problem, the, either you, either you say, okay, I, I'll solve the friction of adding money. To the bank account, like auto deduction and auto top ups and stuff like that. But we thought about it in a certain way, right? We actually thought, why, what if we do not even want customers to top up? We would actually be happy to give them a certain prepaid credit to a certain segment of users so that they can use any services throughout the month without ever even touching the financial services or payments part of the product. So if you're a loyal customer and we know that you spend $500 a month we would give you $500 credit because we know your payment behavior. We know you always come back to the app and we we know you're a loyal customer. And this $500 you can spend throughout the month. You can also share it with your family. And at the end of the month, you have to just pay, pay one bill at the end of the month for doing your groceries, for doing your car travel, for your food delivery, for your movie tickets and all of that. Just one bill for using the app for the entire month. Now, this is a tricky one because now it obviously adds this credit aspect to things. Obviously, nobody would say no to credit, right? If, if somebody finds out they've got $500, suddenly they would love to use it. So the big challenge was retention, but good quality retention. It's only in financial services and lending. You, you cannot just talk about retention because if you give credit, you can get retention. If you give more credit, you will get even more retention. So the problem is not retention. The problem is how do you get good quality retention? and actually get rid of bad quality retention. So it's it's a second level thinking on retention aspects as well. And then we find out what kind of a good quality retention would be a good benchmark for us to say, okay, we are doing a good job. And what we found out is what kind of a payment model would make sense. Whether it's one-time credit and pay at the end of the month, what if customers do not pay? We want them to leave the app. Or do we want them to stay on the app? Now, here's where the ecosystem and system thinking comes into play. I cannot harm the, another PM's product because I have blocked the customer or let's say not allowed him to transact because he did not pay the bill at the end of the month. I'm probably impacting a product of seven other product managers if because of my payments solution, the customer is not able to transact anywhere in the app. And that's where actually you start thinking about trade-offs. You have this one rectangle in the app. Think of an app as as a rectangle, right? And then you have to solve everything in the super app in this screen where you already have like 15 icons. And how do you then tell the customer to pay? How do you tell the customer where to go to find out accounts and still not be a friction when they have to order a cab or food? Because that's the primary purpose of the app, not the payments. So solving this good quality retention problem, we tested two models eventually. Uh, that's why, you know, going back to the product strategy question, we were solving the friction of GoPay top-up, the wallet top-up. And now we are here, we are doing a set of actions to validate whether our strategy of not even allowing them to top-up is working or not, right? So it's a bunch of experiments. And, and the first bunch of experiment that we did was uh, give customers two ways to pay. So one is give them a subscription service. So they just pay a small fee per month to continue using the app, that's one. And the second way is obviously you do not make it a subscription model. You make it a one-time model. So anyone can leave us anytime they want. We did an AB test and uh, the one model where we gave the subscription and uh, till date I've not heard about such a business model, even after you know, figuring out and working with other companies is people actually started using the subscription model where they get access to credit. Right? And they have to just pay a minimum and they've continued to, get credit every month. Of course, they still have to pay the bill, but there's no late fee. There is no penalties. There is no, let's say, punishment for not not paying the bill as long as you're on the subscription model. Yeah. So it, it actually got us retention numbers, good quality retention numbers of about 80%. And I've still not heard an 80% retention um, in my others at Booking.com or others, right? So it's month-on-month 80% retention when we look at a cohort analysis. So that was one of the examples of how you a problem statement how you build a product bet but then you have to do a certain set of actions and i feel that also should be part of your product strategy what are the set of actions you will do to to validate your product start so that's one of the examples
2: that's very impressive i say that because i think on the western the u.s we still don't have a super app of sorts i think there are a lot of players trying to play and build a super app but it's, it's so interesting just because we've seen evidence of that in China, in Gojek. Uh, I think Lenny's podcast, recent episode, speaks in depth about Gojek and, and the whole journey. I'd, I'd highly recommend for anybody listening to this. I'm sure most people have already listened to that one. But just in case you haven't, I highly recommend that that kind of gives you the background for the, the landscape of, of the problems that are entirely different in the in, in the Eastern society, right? Yes. They're, they're generally credit averse. Uh, it's more prepaid model. You put money in an account and then use that versus I swipe a credit card and pay at the end of the month uh, at some point. right? So th- this is very, very interesting for me to hear. One more question that I had was, I guess, essential to this one is, Buy now, pay later is sort of a rising phenomenon that we've seen in the Eastern mm-hmm. society that's generally credit averse. What kind yep. of signals do you see as a product leader in that space? I asked that because mm-hmm. as I heard through this story, it seemed yep. more like you built a, an amazing business model, which is essentially a credit model, but you're paying a subscription for mm-hmm. that credit card of sorts, but it's not a credit card. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. So I'm, I'm curious and then you've been in space for very long and it looks like you're very excited about you're still in the space and, and building products. I also oh. asked that because Apple recently just launched their buy now, pay later too. It looks like a lot more people are jumping in here. Just just out sort of curiosity, yeah. if you could enlighten yeah. us, that'd be awesome. So buy now, pay later
0: has different meanings for different parts of the globe. And even in 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 parts of the globe, there's a lot of credit available, typically US, the UK you will still find a lot of binomial reduction. So it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, right? So it's 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 ramping up in countries where there was credit, a lot of credit. It's also ramping up in countries where there was no credit. And then I also have these unique examples like Germany. For hundreds of years, shopkeepers have given 14 or 7 days to pay to their customers out of trust and stuff like that. Especially in Germany, a lot more than some of the other neighboring European countries. And that now when Binopiliter comes in, now it's a digital way of things that Germans are used to doing for hundreds of years. Now it's just become digital, right? And we call it Binopiliter. In Germany, it's called an invoice. As simple as that. We don't call it binop It's an invoice that you pay in seven days of voting. That's all. And you can. So if you go across the world, the credit has very different notions to it. And hence, when you talk about a binopay later payment method. Every time I move to a new country, it's starting from zero again. On what does it mean for consumers? And if you think about it, it's not, it's not just binopay later. What's more important is what is it you're building binopay later for? In Gojek, it was for the super app. Very different kind of team structures, What kind of services my payments would impact? When I was building this for Booking.com in different markets, it was for the travelers who were booking a hotel and stuff like that. Accommodations is a very different use case for binopillator. Just to give you an example, if I'm booking a nice resort that I want to live in two months down the line and I do it with the binopilator after 14 days out, what does that even mean? It's not even binopilator. I'm I'm going to get the service two months down the line, but I have to still pay it in seven days. In all other cases, I get the service, which is like an e-commerce or stuff or, or a super app. And then I pay in seven days because I've already got the service, right? So, and it's a very complex problem to solve in different ecosystems. And that's true rather for any payments, but I I guess more for operator because it's a deferred payment method and hence more complex than instant payment methods that are out there. So the way I always tell, and operator obviously has a lot of positive and negative sentiments in the market, right? And for valid reasons, it's credit and you can't push people into credit. And that's absolutely true. But looking at adoption of operator in different markets, you can you can definitely say there is a big use case. There's a reason the payment method grows. There's a use case. The biggest proof is customers are using it and customers want to use it. Obviously, the downside is the debt, the credit and how to avoid it. And I always summarize the entire buy and operator business model and now also in, in a, in a biz- bit of a business role as well by building products. It all comes down to the learning, the machine learning and the models that you have in place to learn and predict what this next customer would be like in terms of paying back credit right so if you build your model on 3 million customers then you give me one more customer i will have great prediction powers because i've learned from 3 million people of certain age and certain stuff and stuff can would pay or not right so it's it's a machine learning model and two and that's why i'm bullish about it and especially for companies who have large scale and have more this learning aspect and predictive power on who can or cannot be it, would become more valuable versus companies who continue to get into new markets and never actually allow their machine learning models to mature. So if I have to divide the whole buy now operator space, I would put on one side companies like Apple, the banks and big buy now operator players who have the scale to predict uh, the next customer and hence it plays into margins, profitability, not putting customers into debt. Everything then is taken care of if you have better predictive power on who can pay and who can not. On the other side, I will put all other buying operators players who do not have scale are spending a lot of invested money to get to scale and hoping someday they will get better machine learning models to become more profitable. It's not an easy game. You take about four to five years to build even something, you know, close to a, a predictive model. It takes about four to five years for any buying to do that. And that's what I would say is the moat and somebody who's looking at a buy and the company or the space, the moat is your predictive power about the next customer. That's that's it. Everything had, else is what you build around it.
2: That's fantastic. That's very well said. And I think I get a better picture now. That is your scale is a necessity to sustain in some sense in this. Uh, you need space. Yes. That makes sense. Absolutely. This has been fantastic. I have a quick rapid fire questions if, if you have the time to go through. Are you ready? Yes. Great, awesome. This is one that I ask everybody, your most recent wow moment using a product. I just recently bought these Bose
0: earphones called Quiet Sense, and they have a app to go about. You can switch between four or five different modes depending on where you are. It's actually exciting how hardware and software can play along, and that's why I always find these hardware software interfaces quite interesting. So, the, the wow feature for me was, you know, it has different modes. So obviously, noise cancellation has been there for a lot of years now. It has awareness mode, for example, which means that overall, it's noise cancellation. You cannot be sitting in, let's say, or walking around um, in the middle of a busy area on, on noise cancellation, absolutely not understanding what has an aware feature. So, when, for example, there's a bicycle or somebody shouting or stuff, it actually stops noise cancellation for a few seconds for you to realize if something is happening around you and it, then it turns it back on and and it takes these decisions on its own so if you're running in a busy area and you see there's a bike coming on your right and stuff the aware feature turns on and it tells you that there's a bike coming and then it turns uh, off again so that was pretty cool i think the That's ability for hardware the, the ability for the hardware to realize that there are these noises which are can be uh, it's good if you know about these ones because then you can take an action any kind of thread that you have any kind of shout or noise that's coming up so it's an amazing feature. that was the wow thing and you can control it from the app air feature or noise cancellation
1: that's
2: actually very impressive because i know apple uh, the airpods also have the transparency mode but then you have to manually sort of invoke it and kind of change it Everybody and, it. and, and this is the fact that it's automated it's amazing that, that that's great uh second question three top books that has greatly influenced you and in your product sense
0: yeah I think any list is not complete starting with inspired so I have just put it first <laughs> the way I do book reading is not just finding the next book which is interesting I actually I have a set of probably 20 books that I can go back to every year it's almost like you know I, I treat the whole product management space as little more academic rather than others who maybe look at it from a what's the next cool thing because I feel the fundamentals don't change and then you just need to figure out which books teach you the fundamentals right and hence uh, in this bookshelf of 20 I've got these three favorite books so which is obviously inspired is one then the second one which I like is called rework by Jason Fried amazing book I could keep going back to it because when there is too much uh, of product jargons and stuff and you want to go back to basic rework is an amazing reminder of how to get cut through the noise and get to fundamentals or solving complex problems. The third one will be zero to one. So that one is all time favorite as well. So my all my books are things you can go back to any time of the week, any time of the day. So that that's how I read.
2: That's a great list. I have still not gone through rework work yet. It's on my list uh, at some point for okay. sure, but I, I will now. Uh, third question so now the whole world is looking you know to capitalize on gpt there's uh, i feel like 10 products every day on product getting launched as a wrapper on gpt and, and large language models now now what could be something that you would love for an ai to solve for you personally uh, think of it as is something that you need if somebody's yeah. listening for it uh, now has a new idea to go build a product Actually, I
0: thought about it, I was reading, I was writing this post on ChatGPT use cases for product managers mm-hmm. and then I did not write about it, but I thought that, that would be a pretty cool application of AI, would be like a personal assistant. That's what I'm waiting for, actually. I would actually pay money for someone to build. So someone who can predict how I take decisions on my calendar, for example, what kind of meetings I participate I reject and what meetings I overdo and not overdo and stuff like that and can hence take decisions on my future appointments and calendars. that's just one example other example is if I'm in meetings and I've said things in a meeting and the next time the bi-weekly happens the AI can remind me that these are the things that you said and maybe you want to do you want to follow up on these topics again and I would say yes please let's follow up and it creates an agenda item for the next meeting right so a personal assistant Something like this would be a great use case for AI, for me. That's, uh, that's, that's
2: definitely a great one. I've always wanted, you can Anton, you know, who could just sit on Slack and respond to people on my behalf. That's like my, my, my vision for whenever this thing picks up, I'd love to have that. Whoever wants to build that, I will pay how much I it costs. Just a month. And so uh, definitely, definitely good ones there. Now this has been, this has been a lot of fun and thank you so much again. Where can people find you on the internet? I'm available on Twitter.
0: I I post quite frequently and I make sure my content is always, you know, high quality and less noise. So I try to go into that. So that's Twitter. my first name, you can find me. A lot more of my writing is on Productify. So productify.substack.com is, is where I spend my weekends uh, mostly writing. And obviously on LinkedIn, right? So these are the three spaces where I'm active on.
2: That's great. And I'll make sure to link all of your, your LinkedIn and Instagram links in too. I personally enjoyed reading the Substack. And one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on here and talk about some of these topics, I think you, you speak about them in your newsletter. This is definitely a lot of good content in there and a lot of research that you put in there to write those articles too. So and This has been a lot of fun, And I hope you had some some good fun as we chatted through too. Uh, thank you so much again for, for joining me.
0: Same, same here, Naveen. And I've enjoyed this podcast. And I think what you've been doing, I guess uh, it's 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 quite high quality. And I really, really see this going far. So I've enjoyed the
2: same. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the kind words. Take care, then.
1: Thanks. For that.